Thanks for tuning in to this week's message. For more information, you can go to connectionschurch.church or follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Good morning, church. Don't you just love the freedom and the opportunity we have to worship our God in this place? As, as we sing and praise, I just can't help but think about the 4th of July that we had this week. The 4th of July is really about celebrating our independence. And it's really about our freedom. And though it's a privilege we enjoy every day, it is still only second best to the freedom that we enjoy that is found in Christ Jesus. Amen. All right, so thank you for being here today. If you're joining with us online, I know those of you are still vacationing as you look to your left and look to your right. Uh, we're still a little short today. So I pray for them. I pray for self, uh, safe travel. And uh, I just want you to follow along today. I want you to take notes. I want you to flip to the back side of that handout and just follow along and just open your hearts to what God would have us here today. So now, a little funny story. If you don't see much of me, I know I only stand about this high over the, the platform here, okay? But if, you, if, if I'm doing a little bit of this, it's because this morning when I printed my notes, you know, I, I have to print it out in about a 14-size font. So that way when I walk around and I, and I get lost, when I come back, I can look at it and know where I'm at. Unfortunately, it printed out with about a size 2. So I'm sitting here like this reading it today. But that's okay because it took it from a 7-page document down to a three-page, which means it took it from about an hour and a half to about an hour. So we're good. All right, in order for us to really set the stage in what Jesus is telling us, we're going to do some imagination again this week. So if you would, go ahead and flip your Bibles over to Matthew chapter 19. That's where we're going to be starting. That's where we're going to kick it off as we continue our series, Upside Down Kingdom. So in order for us to set the stage... I want us all to assume in this room that we are all perfect people, all right? Now, for some of us, that might be a little easier, but I already got that, right? But I want us to assume we are perfect people. We have all kept the commandments. We all tithe. We all volunteer. We help our neighbors, and we all go to church every Sunday. Now, it's fair to assume we really do try to do these things. It's, it's fair to say that we try our best, right? I think it's safe to say that no one here tries to be less than what they could be and not live up to their full potential. So by a show of hands, who in here owns something? Whether it be a house, a car, an RV, a motorcycle, a cat, gerbil, whatever. Somebody owns something. All right. Now, a few short weeks ago, I gave some stats on how we in America are extremely rich compared to the rest of the world. So everyone in this room, again, stick with me today. We're all perfect people, right? And we're all extremely rich. So congratulations, that's who we are today. Now I want you to do one thing for me. I want you to sell everything you have. We got one, we got one, sold. I want you to sell whatever it may be, your house, your car, and then I want you to take the proceeds, and then I want you to give them to the Salvation Army. So everything that you have, take and sell. And walk, because you don't have a car anymore, walk to the Salvation Army and hand it over freely. So let's think about that for a minute. And I want to know how that really makes you feel. Because you may be thinking, I'm already a perfect person, right? 
So why must I sell what I have earned to give it away? My question to you is what if Jesus asked you to? And what if your eternity depended on your answer? Now, we have set the stage. As we will read through Matthew 19, we have set the stage. We have set our hearts. And now we've made it personal. And as we read, I want you to imagine that it was being asked of you. And consider your response. Starting in Matthew 19, verse 16, we see the story of the rich young ruler. We read, just then a man came up to Jesus and asked, teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied, there is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Which ones? He replied, you shall not murder you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. All of these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? And in verse 21, Jesus responded, if you want to be perfect, go. Sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, then come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. All right, so up to this point, by our standards, right, this man was perfect. He kept the commandments, but don't miss what Jesus said in 21. If you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions, which suggests he was not, in fact, perfect. See, Jesus always knows where we stand, he always knows the things that we lack, the things in our life that hinder us from truly following him. And he's saying here in verse 21, sell your possessions, give to the poor, and come follow me. Now understand that the young man didn't just not sell his possessions. He completely turned his back on Jesus and walked away. Why? Why? Because his unwillingness to change one thing, one thing that he lacked. Are we today willing to change what we lack? And not to miss out on a great teaching moment, Jesus turns to his disciples in verse 23 and says, Truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. And if I'm being completely honest today, this next verse has been something I have prayerfully thought through and wrestled with in my life. In verse 25, when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, who then can be saved? I mean, come on, I'm with the disciples on this one, right? You're telling me a rich person has less chance for eternal life then a camel through the eye of a needle? What? It's hard enough to get the thread through the little guy. You ever tried try to get the thread through? <laughs> it takes me like 10 minutes, let alone a camel. 
But this is upside down kingdom, guys. This is what this series is all about. Jesus is completely counterculture and radical. And, and when everything in you, every human instinct says, it's okay. That one thing in my life that I'm hanging on to, it's okay. It's okay because I'm good everywhere else in my life, right? Or I've got that under control. That's not what Jesus is saying. He says, a camel through the eye of a needle. That's impossible. Right? That's physically impossible. And in perfect Jesus fashion, in verse 26, Jesus turns and looks at them and says, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Number one on your outline today, what is impossible with us is possible with God. Now, remember I asked, what if your eternity depended on your answer? I asked because this isn't a story about some rich young ruler or historical narrative. This is about eternity. We know this as we continue in verse 27, Peter, being Peter, of course, asked Jesus, we have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? See, Peter and the disciples, they're still stuck on the things of this world. And what's in it for them? Let me tell you today, if you're here in this room trying to be a Christian because the things you can earn or be given to you, then you're following the wrong Jesus. Amen. Unless your desire is for a relationship with him and accepting his sacrifice as enough for your life both now and forever. So Peter basically asks, he said, what's in it for us? in which Jesus continues in verse 28 through 30. And, and notice, Jesus actually answers Peter. Instead of answering a question with a question, which he likes to do, or, Peter, or, or putting Peter in his place for asking such a selfish question, he answers him and says, Truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel, and everyone who has left their houses, or brothers or sisters, or father and mother, or wife, or children, or fields, for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. Again, it's about eternity. And Jesus is saying that if you prioritize the things, the stuff in your life, and the people to allow Jesus to shine through you and reign in your life, then you will inherit eternal life. So he gives Peter this great response, and uh, at this Peter and the disciples are probably feeling pretty good, right? And then Jesus makes another upside-down kingdom statement. In verse 30, But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. We'll discuss this a little later and how this comes into play. So flipping over to chapter 20, Matthew chapter 20, I want you to remember number one, Nothing is impossible with God. He can do all things to accomplish his purpose. And in doing so, he is the one who recruits his workers. Number two on your outline, God is the one going to recruit workers. 
Chapter 20, starting in verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the workers on one denarius for the day, he sent them into his vineyard. When he went out about nine in the morning, he saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. To these men, he said, you go to my vineyard and I'll give you whatever is right. So off they went. About noon and about three, he went out again and did the same thing. Then about five, he went out and found others standing around. And he said to them, why have you been standing here all day doing nothing? Because no one hired us, they said to him. You also go work in my vineyard, he told them. So we're going to stop right there and we're just going to pause for a minute. And we're going to unpack some of this because it really is truly important that we get a, a grasp on what's happening in verses 1 through 7. So before I ever start to study any scripture, I first need to understand who's saying it, who's hearing it, and what's being said. So immediately when I start reading this passage, a few things just jump right out to me. One being, Jesus is the one speaking. And right from the beginning, he says, for the kingdom of heaven is like. So do not forget this phrase, for the kingdom of heaven is like. All right, so for me, my ears are already perked up and my heart is already attentive to what God is saying here. So in verse one, the landowner went out early. So those of you who know me know I am not an early person. I do not get up well. But notice that he goes out early. When sin creeps into your life, it is important to repent early. When struggles come, it is necessary to pray early. When fear arises, it is critical to stand up in boldness early and proclaim victory over it. Do it early and do it often. Now stick with me as I run through these next couple verses real quick. In verse 2, he agreed to pay them a denarius, which is a normal day's wages and will be important to remember later. In verses 3 at 9 a.m. and also in verses 5 around noon and 3 o'clock, the lantern goes out and finds more people to come and work in his vineyard. Cool. Now in verse 6, we see the owner goes out yet again, but this time around 5 o'clock. Now for most of us, it's 5 o'clock. It's time to clock out, right? But what we know of Jewish culture of that time is the workday started around 6 a.m. and ended around 6 p.m., a 12-hour day. And what's interesting here is the owner asked them, why have you been standing here all day doing nothing? Which, what only I, I can imagine when something like this in verse 7, well, I don't know. No one hired us. What do you want me to do? My question to you today is has someone hired you? Or are you standing around all day waiting on your opportunity? Have you ever heard the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few? It's not that there aren't people to work the fields, it's that they're standing in the marketplace. See, this scripture isn't about crops, it's about people. Remember how this chapter started, the kingdom of heaven is like? See, God has given us this amazing ability and opportunity to be his workers, and we have the responsibility to act. When people are struggling and hurting, when people are lost and worried, when people are without Christ and a hope for eternity, we are to work his vineyard. His vineyard. In these times, the marketplace was filled with hundreds of workers who waited to be hired. This would be equivalent to our jobs.com or our hiring agencies today. 
I see in today's society, we have HR, hiring managers, and temp agencies which handle the normal hiring for companies around our country. See, I work for a company who employs more than 28,000 employees. When I was hired, the CEO did not personally offer me the position, nor would they ever which is important because in this time, as we read here in Matthew, nor would the owner of the vineyard hire the workers. It was customary for a foreman or overseer to go out and hire the workers. The actual owner had normally little to nothing to do with the workers in their fields. Unlike God, who has everything to do with you in the way that the landowner is a representation of God himself. Number three on your outline, this truth exposes God's amazing heart of love. Because the reality of the marketplace is the workers who came there day in and day out who didn't get chose will most likely go hungry. And what I've come to learn is many of us are hungry. Hungry for understanding, hungry for knowledge, for purpose, and hungry for a relationship with God. And if the marketplace was a representation of today's society, there would be many people standing around all day with the same excuse, no one hired me. But in God's amazing love, he shows grace that he himself comes down from the vineyard and picks you personally. And we cannot give up hope. And some days it's going to be hard. And some days we're not going to hear from God immediately. And it's going to leave us wondering if we're ever going to be picked. Well, if you have a pulse, you have a purpose to show up to the marketplace. Because God doesn't show favoritism to those he picks. Whether you're picked at six, nine, 12, 3, or even 5 o'clock, which is known as the 11th hour. God does not show favoritism. He has love and grace. He shows to you in abundance every single day as he comes down, and he alone comes down from his vineyard. Personally, it's about eternity. As Pastor Robert begins to make his way, I just want you to know it doesn't matter how old you are, what your background is, how long you've been in church or never been in church. He is actively pursuing you for his kingdom and your wages are eternity with him. Thank you. Thank you, Pastor Terry. Can you help me show your appreciation? Terry, I, I, love, I love hearing Pastor Terry preach because you hear the passion, you hear, you hear the heart and you hear the the love that he has for, for God and, and for people. And, and as we continue through this journey, as, as we finish up our time in the word together here, I want you to turn your attention to Matthew chapter 20, beginning in verse 14, where, where it, it says this, of the parable we're picking up with, take what is yours and go your way. But I wish to give to this last man the same as I gave to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own or... Is your eye envious because I am generous? Thus, the last shall be first and the first shall be last. Now, number four on your outline is simply this. We can't earn salvation. 
Now here Jesus goes again and adds the phrase, the first will be last and the last first. The meaning of this phrase is that being first or last is not important, right? It's just not that important. There is no advantage in being rich or being the first worker. When talking about going to heaven, a person does not get into heaven because he or she works hard. Or as I've heard it for for many, many years, a lot of people have this mentality when it comes to making it to heaven. If my good outweighs my bad, then I'm golden, right? I mean, if all the good stuff I've done stacks up in this column and all the bad stuff I've done stacks up in this column and the good is taller than than this column and the bad, then guess what? I'm going to make it, right? Is Is that the way heaven works? No. You can't earn your salvation. Jesus' point is that, that we do not get into heaven because we are rich or have worked hard. We do not get into heaven because we've, we've done good works. That God will not look at our works how much or how little we have done. It does not depend on our efforts. Would you turn and tell somebody next to you that? It's not, not your efforts. It's not your work. It depends only on God, and he gives heaven, which is represented as a denarius, a a form of of money or payment here, as a reward to each person who simply believes in Jesus Christ as their Savior. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. If and when you get to heaven, and I pray it is when you get to heaven, right? We're going to be surprised at who's there, and we're going to be surprised at who's not there. Because it's not about works. It's not about the good stuff we do, although God has called us to do good stuff as the people of of, of Jesus, right? We're not saved to sit around and, and do nothing good. But it's not about that stuff. Contrary to what many believe, that if they do enough good and it outweighs their bad stuff, they will slide right into heaven. Nope, we couldn't do enough good in a thousand lifetimes. Because that's not what it's all about. It's about the blood of Jesus that was shed at Calvary's cross, covering our sins and us stepping up and believing that Jesus is who he said he was and he did what he said he did and he makes it a gift to us. Salvation's a gift. It's not something you earn. It's a gift. We cannot earn it. The number five on your outline about the title today all the workers are the same no matter what time they started. Pastor Terry started us down that journey. Some came in at one hour, some another hour, some later in the day, and some came in at the very last moment, the very 11th hour, as it is called, that five o'clock hour, the parable that Jesus is telling about the landowner who hired day laborers. So, work in his vineyard depicts an event typical of the first century life in Israel. The parable begins with a typical scene of workers milling about in the marketplace and a landowner hiring them to work in his vineyard for what was a customary daily wage. But as this parable progresses, atypical elements are added by Jesus, things that would surprise and cause the hearers to wonder as he makes his point with every person who hears this. Take, for example, that some laborers were hired to work only one hour. As, as Terry mentioned, a, a typical work out, a day was 12 hours. How many of you put in a 12-hour shift before? How many of you ever worked more than 12 hours straight? When I was in Bible college, one day, we went out on a Friday, just as soon as we got out of class, at 1 o'clock, we were there at work doing construction work in downtown Dallas, Texas. We finished that project the next day at 12 noon, 23 straight hours of work. You know, along about hour 12 or 13, I was thinking, man, it's going to feel good to get back to our dorm room, which was a little apartment, 
three of us shared. Going to be, be great to jump in the shower and just get cleaned up after doing demo and construction and hauling drywall and everything else. And that's going to be, be great to just kind of decompress a little bit and then get some sleep. Long about hour 18, I was thinking, it's just going to be great to get home. When we got in at like one o'clock Saturday afternoon, you know what I did? I fell on my bed. I didn't go to the bathroom and take a shower. I didn't get cleaned up. I didn't change clothes. I didn't put my jogging shorts on. I typically sleep in. I just fell on my bed in my dirty clothes, and I think I slept until Monday morning, right? I'm telling you, a 12-hour work day. And then he makes this point that, that some came in at the end of that day. But here's the thing I want you to get. Everybody received the same amount of pay. Now, some theologians are reading this parable thought that Jesus was advocating for an economic agenda, casting a vision for some system of a guaranteed living wage, which all are paid the same. Sounds familiar today, right? Bernie? <laughs> no thanks. Economic reform, however, is not the context for the telling of this story. Further, to read it that way is to import our mindset, get this, of calculation into this parable. The mindset that, in many respects, I believe that Jesus is challenging. And, and here's what I mean by that if you're kind of lost right now. If you think about the way we think and operate, our tendency is to hear this kind of a formula. We live in a world of calculation of how to get the most, of how to be in first place. So we hear Jesus' teaching and we plug it into that world and that mindset. So Jesus, if I understand you correctly, then when I go and stand at the back of the line then that's how I'm going to get picked to be first. If I, if I make sure that I'm last in the door, then in fact, I'll find myself at the front of the line, right? That's not what he's talking about at all. We are ever calculating. But just hear this right now. He's not given a formula. And I think many times that those of you that kind of grown up in church, you've read through this and heard this story before, you kind of thought that way. Well, Come on through the door, brother. The first shall be last. last you know, that's not it. Have you ever, you ever said that or thought that? Or, or, you know, I don't know if you figured this out, but Christians are good at eating. And we like to have these covered dish dinners. And we like to, you know, line up the food on these big tables and tables and chairs set up. We do that in here sometimes in certain celebrations. And, and we have people go down both sides of the table because it makes it quicker, especially when you got about 300 feet or 400 or more. And, you know, we, we, we've said it to each other plenty of times. Oh, no, you go. Oh, no, you go first. No, no, I insist. You go first. All right, brother, the last shall be first. So you go first. You know, you know what I'm saying? That has nothing to do with this. Or as Pastor Terry mentioned a few moments ago, sometimes we calculate, if I do this, what good am I going to get back out of it? I mean, how am I going to be rewarded? And that's kind of what Peter, Peter brought up to Jesus. Now, that's not what this is about. Here's what I love about this story. It's the story of just getting to heaven. It doesn't matter if you were early in getting there or late. Everybody gets the same reward. There's no order up there. There's no line. There's no, no tabulations of who did what. We all just make it to heaven. But that's so contrary to what we've been ingrained in and in growing up in American culture that, hey, if I do this, I'll get this. Or if I can just get my name here on the list or rise up the ladder or whatever else you want to calculate. 
As a matter of fact, take calculations out of it completely. And just understand the heart of God here who goes into the marketplace and says, hey, I want you to come and be a part, not only of my, my land workers, but my family. That's the true heart of this story. I want you to come and be a part of the family. I'm going to tell you something. In this world dominated by calculations, it's hard for us to break out of it and hear the true message that Jesus is giving here. It's why Jesus' landowner parable sounds so strange to us. It's why heaven is totally going to be upside down for us from the culture that we exist in currently. Because you know what? When you look at this, it just doesn't make sense to us in the natural realm. But here's the thing about it. We don't exist in the natural realm as the people of God. We are spiritual beings in this natural body. And the word is very clear. This old body is withering away. But the spirit man is ever gaining in Christ and ever growing in him and becoming stronger and stronger as we feed the man of God, the woman of God inside of us to become the people that God has created us to be. And then one day... The Bible tells us we will be like him when we see him face to face. That does something to me too, Jesse. I'm glad it does to you. An amen to that. Then lastly today on your outline, don't, don't miss the tragedy. Number six says the generosity of God never sets well with selfish people. Continuing on again in, in Matthew 20, 14 through 16, take what is yours and go your way. But I wish to give this last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own? Or is, it your, or is your eye envious because I am what? I'm what? Generous. Thus the last shall be first and the first shall be last. Well, I'm reminded of the classic case of the prodigal son. Anybody ever heard that story? <laughs> A couple dozen times maybe. Young man asked, from his father, the riches, the inheritance that was coming to him. And he wanted early because he wanted to go out and party. He wanted to go out and live it up, man. He wanted to go out and experience the world and all that it has to offer. And guess what? His dad reluctantly gave him that. And he went on his way. And man, he, he lived it up big time. And he had friends coming out of the woodwork. Oh, man, he was, he was the big man on campus. Because he had a pocket full of money and they knew that. And boy, they were letting him buy round after round after round and having a, a, a great time until the money ran, whoop, out. A lot of times when the money ran, runs out, those friends run out too. And we know the story. The young man ended up not even having anything to eat. Went to the hog pen and was helping feed the hogs of somebody's farm and, and ended up eating what the hogs were eating. Anybody ever fed hogs before? You don't want to taste that. We feed them the leftovers, the slop. We just put it all in a big bucket and just sling it out there. That's what we used to do in South Gastonia for my friends from there. I'm going to tell you, it's no way to live. And, and he came to himself and he realized... I can't keep on like this. Maybe if I go home, my dad will forgive me and hire me on as just a worker on his, his farm. Maybe I can just work for my dad and he'll pay me a decent wage and I can, I can have a better life than this because I'm going to tell you something. This is the bottom right here. This is rock bottom. And so he made his way home and his dad, instead of 
pointing a finger at him and telling him how dumb he was and what a bad decision he made and, and what a big mistake and, and, and just pouring it all. No, his dad just welcomed him with open arms and said, my son has come home again. Bring out his robe and, and kill the fatted calf. Let's have a party. My son's home. And everything was great because this is a picture of God whenever we come back to him from our sins and, and he welcomes us home. This is a great picture, a great party, great celebration until you look over at the big brother. Not so happy. Not even close. He's actually upset. And he's standing there with his arms folded. I can imagine just looking at this picture saying, this is disgusting. And then the dad notices and said, what, what's wrong? Your, your brother's come home and we should celebrate and rejoice. And he said, no. I've been faithful. I've been here this whole time. I've never strayed. I, I've been good and, and I've done everything that you needed me to do. And I've never run away and done the stuff he's done. And, and yet you have a party for him? Kind of reminds us of this hiring thing of, I started in the first hour. I was the first one on the job. And I've been here all day laboring. And this clown comes in at five o'clock and he works one hour and he gets the same as I get? Are you kidding me? You see, Jesus is always good, as, as Terry mentioned, to start this, this teaching at finding that one thing that one thing that we struggle with and dealing with it. We're not so good at dealing with things with people, even in ourselves, are we? But you know what? If we don't deal with the stuff that needs to be dealt with, the stuff will never get dealt with, and we'll stay stuck in that stuff. And I'm going to tell you something. You've probably been stuck in some stuff for far too long, and you know what? It's no way to live. And Jesus comes along and says, hey, I know what that one thing is. If you will allow me to, I will touch that thing. I will remove it from you. I'll cut it out of your life. I'll get rid of it. And the, the word I kept getting at prayer time this morning before we ever come to the service time was this. Healing. I'll bring healing to your life if you will allow me to. I will deliver you from that thing. I will remove it far from you. And your life can be whole and beautiful again. This envy this jealousy, I'm going to tell you folks right now, that's not the heart of God. And it can't be our heart either. In this parable of the landowner, Jesus wants to tell all of us, his disciples, something about God the Father. He leads them along adding surprising and disturbing details so that, that they might understand something of who God is and his great generosity, the generosity Jesus spoke about in his promise of the hundredfold and the eternal life that he said would be ours. Through this parable, Jesus tells us, his followers, that if God's generosity was to be represented by a man, such a man would be different from any other man that we've ever encountered in our lives. He would be like this landowner who makes no sense to us at all. It doesn't make sense, does it? I mean, look at me right now for a moment. Engage with me. That doesn't make sense, does it? Well, I think we would all describe it as being really upside down. I mean, a guy comes in, works just one hour from five to six. What do we do? We give him a few pennies. We give him a quarter maybe. I don't know. But we don't give him full pay like everybody else who's worked a full day. It makes no sense. But God doesn't make sense at times in his love and generosity to those of us who do not deserve it. And I'm, I'm first in line. I don't deserve it. Man, I'm thankful he doesn't make sense in that way. People who want to figure God out, guess what? <laughs> Good luck with that one. Because you will never be able to. 
And that's the beauty of it. I don't want to figure God out. If I could figure him out, then guess what? I wouldn't need him. But boy, do I need him. And I can never in a million lifetimes figure him out. Through this parable, Jesus tells his followers, God's generosity is so incredible. I, I thought of the, the two thieves hanging on the two crosses on either side of Jesus on Calvary's hill. Remember that story? We, we celebrate Jesus' death and resurrection every, every year at Easter and all through the year and every day of our lives as Christ followers. We mention at times the, the thief on either side of him. Remember, the one just mocked him and, and, and scorned him and joined in with the others. But there was that one thief on the one side who looked at him and said, would you have mercy on me? How many of you remember that as a part of the story? Just raise your hands if you're, you're, you're with me on this. If not, go read it today. It'll change your life. Jesus, in his agony, literally nailed to this tree, breathing his last breath, looked over at him and said, today you will be with me in paradise. There's some people that know the word right here. You can come preach. Get it, girl? You will be with me in paradise today. It doesn't make sense. This guy lived a terrible life, apparently, robbing and stealing every chance he could, and who knows what else he got away with and wasn't convicted of, but we know he was convicted of, of being a thief, and so the sentence in that day and time was death. Now they just slap you on the wrist and say, go do it again. Isn't that, isn't that sad? But the mercy and the love of God. You see, God's upside-down kingdom is about generosity, on a scale and of a kind that this world has never seen and can never seem to understand. The world's generosity is always about earnings. It's always tied to a bonus system lurking behind all forms of worldly generosity is the idea that I actually have this coming to me. I did put forth extra effort on the project. I expect to reap more of the profits, and, and, but God is not like that. Listen to me, church. The last will be first and the first will be last. God's generosity cannot be calculated. It's beyond what the human mind can comprehend and understand. And I, for one, am very thankful for that. Here's what I want you to grab a hold of as we move towards the finish. This parable is a radically owner-centered story. It's a story not necessarily about us, the work we do, but about the owner and his nature, our great God. Our tendency is to make the kingdom about us, our rights, what we're owed. But this story isn't about us. It's not at all. Whether we showed up late or early, worked a lot or worked a little, this story is about God the Father, the owner. Depicted in this parable, the story is about the owner's generosity that just flows like a river, not in response to what we've done, but out of who he is. And when you get that, and when I get that, we have got it, period. We've got what life's about. It's about a loving, incredibly generous, giving heavenly father that came after us and pursued us in the marketplace time and time and time again. My mother served God my whole life and even before that from all the testimonies that I've ever heard others share. 
I was just 20 years old when the Lord took her home. She was 44. My mother wept and prayed over me and my sister and my dad. My dad, some of you know his testimony, he, he never served God. We would be off to church Sundays. He would be sleeping in. We'd be off to church Sunday nights. He'd be watching the Carol Burnett show with the Paps Blue Ribbon in his hand. My mother would plead with him, come to church, come to church with us. She wanted him to be the spiritual leader of the home as we as men and husbands and fathers are, are called to be. No, no thanks, no, no thanks. She was a beautician. She worked every Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. Sundays, we were in church, as I mentioned, most all day. Mondays and Tuesdays were her day off. But my mother would literally shut herself up in her bedroom while my dad was at work and we were at school and seek the face of God in prayer. Cry out to him every week faithfully. And you say, well, how do you, how do you know you were at school? When I'd come home from school, I would walk in the house and the door would be shut and I would hear my mom's prayers and, and hear her crying out to God on behalf of, of us. Keep my family in your hands. Save my husband. Bring up my children to serve you and work for you. Those were the kind of prayers. And so you fast forward. Mom passed at 44 just a few years ago. My father, who was right at 70 years old at the time, crippled from a stroke, and we took care of him. And I walked in one evening to get his dinner and get him ready for bed and he looked at me with tears coming down his face and he said son I gave my heart to Jesus today you talk about church we had church right there in his little living room in the apartment near my house that I could get to him and take care of him man we celebrated and cried and he said can you baptize me in a wheelchair and some of you men helped at East Belmont Baptist before we moved here get him in a chair, a regular chair, and carry him down in the baptistry. Just so happened the heat stopped working the night before on that baptistry, and it was cold. But my, my dad, paralyzed on the left side, been through all kind, of, all kind of stuff, Vietnam veteran, everything you can imagine. He was grinning from ear to ear and crying, crying like you wouldn't believe as he went down in that water and came back up. Now, as you close your eyes with me just for a moment as we finish this time of our service, here's, here's what came rushing back to my memory and my heart this week. My dear mom, she served God faithfully for many, 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 many years. Just about all of her 44 years that I've, I've heard. My dad passed away just a couple of years after coming to Christ. Guess where they both are today? They both got paid the same. They both are at home. They are both in heaven. And I'm going to tell you, there was no sulking when he arrived at home. There was celebrating. And I can imagine my mom being right there beside Jesus, welcoming him into the glories of heaven. And I'm going to tell you, there was no jealousy. It was all joy. Why? Because the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And the, the heart of this story is about just how much God loves every one of us. And the takeaways today are simply this. He loves you that much. 
And if you haven't accepted his invitation to come and join his family, to be a part of that great salvation that he offers freely, then today is your day. Don't delay. Don't put it off. Don't say, well, I've got to the five o'clock hour. I can keep living like hell and then just barely squeeze in at the last moment. That's what the parable tells me. No. That's what you're taking away. You're missing everything. Here's what it tells you. Today is your day. This moment. Don't wait. Don't delay. Don't put it off. Come to Jesus. Come to him right now. Secondly, the takeaway is this. We want to see everybody that we can come to Christ. Make it to heaven. If they're on their deathbed, breathing their last, and they are far from Christ and need his salvation, we want to see them come. And man, if they accept Christ in that moment, in those last moments of their life here on this earth, then we celebrate, we rejoice, man. All of heaven throws a party. The Bible tells us, so why should we sit back with our arms folded and say, gee, they get in like that? And and I've been living for you my whole life, 30, 40, 50, 100 years, whatever it may be. No, that's not the heart of the Father. The heart of the Father is to always rejoice when someone comes to Him and believes in Him. This first shall be last stuff about getting in line at the the covered dish dinner at church is, is not what this is about. This is upside down kingdom stuff. It doesn't make sense to the natural, but but once again, we don't we don't live in the natural. We are God's spiritual beings. So if you're in this room right now and you say just very simply, you know what, Pastor, I I need to join the family. I need to say yes to the invitation of, of God to come and receive his great gift of salvation. Would you pray for me in this last moments of this part of our time? Would you just raise your hand and say, Pastor, don't forget me this morning. I, I accept Christ in my life. Yes, anybody else? Yes, anybody else? Any others? Anybody else? And I don't think that, that there's anybody in this room or outside listening right now that would say, you know what, I, I, I'm begrudging people coming in. I don't think that's our challenge as the people of God at and a part of Connections. But I believe what our challenge might be is the going into the marketplace and calling people to come home calling people to, to join the family. I believe that we've, we've settled in this place of being lackadaisical with, with the urgency of the hour and the great need for lost people all around us to come and join God's family. So rather than make a call for those of you that have struggled with that in your heart, and maybe you have, and if you have, you can raise your hand. I just want to make a call for those of you that have, will admit freely, you know what, I, I've kind of lost sight of the great need of lost people around me. And I I want God to to cut my heart with that fresh and new today so I could see people as he sees them from this day forward. Would you just raise your hands and say, Pastor, pray for me. That's that's my prayer as well this morning. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Yes, yes, yes. How many others? Just lift your hands up. Lift them up. Over here on the left side, anybody? Yes, thank you. Anybody else? Time's ticking away on God's cosmic clock. And he's calling us to live upside down lives that that really doesn't make sense to the people around us, but it's so attractive and attracting.
to them because it is so radically different. I want you to stand all together across this room, whether you raise your hands or not. And I want you to do this with me. I want you to just hold your hands up, both of them up. Doesn't make you Pentecostal, doesn't make you anything, doesn't make you anything other than just somebody that's symbolically surrendering to Christ fully in your own life. Hands up, Lord, represents my heart's open to you today. And God, I counted several people, three, I think, that said yes to Jesus. Yes to you, Lord. Your great offer of salvation, your redemption, your hope, your life, eternal, your love, your grace, your your mercy, everything that you have to pour upon us, God. Your great salvation that we could never earn in a million lifetimes, God. But we don't have to. We just have to say yes to your gift. Today we do that, God. And right now with our arms lifted up, God may look strange to the people and the world around us, but we don't care what it looks like to them. We only want to live for you. We only want to please you. And right now, in acts of full surrender, we say, God, come and touch our hearts and break us in the hard places that we've accumulated, God. Maybe we do look back begrudgingly over people who come in at the last moment, God, and we've been serving you, but I I pray that's not the case. But if so, God, just deliver us from that older brother mindset and mentality, God. But, But more so, I pray that you would soften our hearts, God. You would open our eyes to the lost people all around us each and every day that we rub shoulders with, God. And you would compel us to move towards them and not run away from them or not even not think about them, God, but understand who they are, where they are, and that they need you desperately as we all do. And then we pray that you use us to move towards them, to be a vessel, to be a link, to be somebody that can bridge the gap between you and them, God. Use us as your ambassadors. Use us as your missionaries, God. Use us as your preachers, God. Use us as as links to get to you in whatever way you choose to, God. But here's what we do right now. We make ourselves available. We lay ourselves on your altar of sacrifice and say, God, our life belongs to you. And rightfully so, because you're the one that gives us life. You're the one that put breath inside of us, that formed us in our mother's womb. So Lord, we surrender to you fully and completely. And as we worship in song together right now, God, we do so in celebration of who you are, your amazing, generous heart of love, your grace, and your goodness that's poured out upon us. Would you sing it out, church? He deserves everything that we can give to him today. Thanks for tuning in to this week's message. For more information, you can go to connectionschurch.church or follow us on Facebook and Instagram.